right. I'd also like to begin our time with prayer. It's a wonderful, sweet time of singing, so thank you for serving us that way. Well, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for uh, a new day. Thank you for the way that you love us and that your mercies are new every morning. We thank you that you're committed, committed to loving us in Christ and seeing us in Christ with that perfect imputed righteousness credited to us, which is sufficient for your holy standards. Our own righteousness is not enough. And Lord, we thank you that you love us in him. And we thank you that you are committed to covering our sins day by day that you do not treat us as our sins deserve, but give us such lavish gifts of grace, such as fellowship with one another and the gifts of food and, and of good times and even a, a sunny day. And so I want to pray now as you uh, open the word to us, O oh Lord, I pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on each one of us, as it says that happened after Jesus was raised from the dead and as he was in the upper room with his uh, apostles and with many others, it says, then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. So I pray that you would do that now in my mind and in all of our minds, so that we would get the most out of our study in the word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Continue our study in this incredible book. And I'm going to just walk through um, this chapter and uh, seek to apply it to Calvary Baptist and also to my own uh, church as well and my own thoughts. I'd like to begin by reading uh, this entire chapter. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault, in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. All of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. 
I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs, for he longs for all of you, and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. Well, this uh, chapter, Philippians 2, has one of the most famous sections of this entire epistle, maybe even in the entire New Testament. And it contains a mystery of something I would even refer to the language that I used uh, last night of an infinite journey. Uh, But here it refers to Christ, where Christ was in the heavenly realms. He was exalted as God and glorious. Isaiah chapter 6 describes the call of Isaiah, saying very plainly, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him there were seraphs, each with six wings, and with two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now John chapter 12 tells us plainly that that glory was Christ's, that Isaiah saw Christ. And so that's the pre-incarnate Christ in the glory of heaven, that heavenly glory. And we're going to walk through this account, but it's very familiar that he had that heavenly glory and laid it down. Like in the Christmas hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. And he laid aside that glory and came from heaven to earth. And then from earth within uh, human society, went downward from there, even to the point of being crucified, the lowest of the low. He humbled himself as a human, even to the point of dying on the cross for us. And so we're familiar with these words, and there's so much theology wrapped into this, but this is serving a function or a purpose in Paul's epistle here. He's using the example of Christ to jar them out of the selfishness and the fleshly nature that is causing divisions within the church. And he's doing that so that they might fulfill their mission in Philippi, their mission in a pagan world, which is greatly hindered by their divisions. And so he's exhorting them to be united together so that they can hold out the word of life to a world that so desperately needs salvation. The world can do divisions and factions and hatred and unforgiveness very well. But the church is an oasis of heaven, a colony of heaven, and we should be able 
through the gospel, by having the mind of Christ, to transcend fleshly divisions and present to a world that's desperate for salvation, present a picture of heavenly unity. And so he's appealing to the Philippians that they be one together, and he uses the example of Christ to charge them to do this. He says, you are equipped to do this. You should imitate Christ to the end that you be united. Now, there is no more powerful weapon in the hands of our Heavenly Father for the spread of the gospel than a healthy church. It is the most potent, powerful weapon there is in the hands of God. I don't in any way minimize an individual Christian. A spirit-filled Christian can do much, but a church can do more. And so as the church is together, the spiritual gifts are flowing and functioning, the teachers are teaching, the helpers are helping, the administrators are are setting up events and planning things, and all of those gifts are functioning. But even more than that, the fruit of the Spirit is flowing, and people are loving one another and serving one another, and unbelievers come in and say, as Tertullian said, the unbelievers are saying back in the Roman days, behold how they love one another. It is a powerful witness to the to this uh, watching world. Conversely, a church that's divided and faction-ridden and disliking one another and having disputes with one another is repulsive to the outside world. They can do that just fine. And so Paul is appealing with them, and that's the the purpose. Remember at the end of chapter 1, he's uh, urging them to suffer well. He's urging them, even if they should be imprisoned, to be imprisoned well for the glory of God because it has been granted to them on behalf of Christ to suffer for him and that if they suffer well the watching world will be will be jarred and convicted that they don't have that kind of courage in the face of death it's a sign to them that they will be destroyed if they're not converted they'll be destroyed and condemned sent to hell but they will be saved so if you have this kind of peace And you have this kind of joy and confidence, even in the face of imprisonment and death, that will be a tremendous uh, evidence of the truth of the resurrection of Christ. So that's what he was saying there at the end. You're going through uh, suffering, you're going through struggle, and the world is watching. But he's saying the same thing now in this second chapter. You all aren't getting along. You are divided amongst yourself. We know at the end of this book, we've got Euodia and Syntyche, two women, who just weren't getting along. They were working hard for the gospel. They labored alongside Paul for the gospel, but they didn't get along with, the, with each other. And at the end of, of this book, in chapter 4, Paul's going to, to urge uh, someone, loyal yoke fellow or syzygis, uh, perhaps a pastor there in the church, effectively to put these two women in a room and don't let them come out until they agree. This is the basis of that appeal. Often we say, you know, we're going to agree to disagree. That is not a Christian option. Now, I understand that we're not going to come to perfect unity in this world, but the more that we can display a supernatural unity, the more powerful will our witness be to lost people. We need to display the kind of unity that Christ prayed for in John 17. Right before he was arrested and crucified, he prayed in John 17, what's known as the high priestly prayer. And he prayed that not just for these apostles, but for those who would hear and believe through their message, that all of them would be one, Father. Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they be brought to complete unity 
to let the world know that you sent me. So the unity of the church is based on the unity of the Trinity. Perfect unity of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And there's a process of that unification that goes on here and now. It will be consummated in the next world. It will be perfect in the next world. Praise God. But the more that we can be one now and united now, the more powerful will our witness be to a watching world. And so Jesus prays in John 17, may they be brought to the kind of unity, Father, that you and I enjoy, so that the watching world may believe that you sent me. You see how he links their faith in Jesus to the unity of the church. Now one thing I believe, everything that we pray for according to the will of the Father we get. Do you believe that? Do you believe if we pray according to his will, that he'll hear us, and if, we, if he hears us, we know that we have whatever we've asked of him. I hope you believe that, because that's right in Scripture. It's right there in 1 John. So say, yes, I believe that, because it's in the Bible. Now, I don't know what your batting average is in prayer. Are you batting a 1,000? Shake your head. Say, no, I am not batting a 1,000. I have not gotten everything I've asked for in prayer. I haven't either. Why? Because I don't pray according to the will of the Father. My heart is not completely lined up with his. I don't fully understand his will and purpose. The more I study the scripture, the more my heart gets harmonized with God and the more I understand the kinds of things I have to pray for based on scripture. Let me ask you a question. Do you think Jesus gets everything he asks for from the Father? Yes. What, 95%, 99%? No, 100%. He gets everything he asks for. Then he's going to get this one. He's going to get that his church will be, in fact, perfectly united like the Father and the Son. In heaven, we will agree with one another about everything. Now, it's hard to believe, isn't it? When you think about a multitude greater than anyone could count from every tribe, language, people, and nation, radically different backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different cultural and linguistic backgrounds, we will agree about everything in heaven. The more we can do so now, the better. And so Paul is urging here in Philippians 2 that this local church be united. And not only that, I think he gives, uh, in a series of descriptions about that unity, an insight into what the unity of the Trinity is about. Honestly, the Trinity is an infinite mystery. I think it would be not hard for us to comprehend three gods. Uh, People have been polytheistic all over the world. It's actually not that hard. The problem for us theologically is that we believe in one God and only one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But he is revealed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. And that's the doctrine of the Trinity. Very difficult for us to comprehend. The mystery is the unity. The oneness, not the threeness, the oneness. That's the mystery. It is also the mystery of marriage, how two can become one. Still working on that mystery. Been married for 30 years plus a month. And we're still learning what it means that we're one. And it's the mystery of the church. We are one together. And so, for us to try to understand what does that mean, I think what he says here in describing the kind of unity they should have with one another, I go right up to the Trinity and say that's the kind of unity they have with each other. 
Look what it says here that, uh, and I'll get to the, the if you have any encouragement part, but just look what he says. He said, make my joy complete in verse uh, 2 by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. That's one translation's way of saying it. But uh, I think what it means is that you think alike and you love alike and you're moving in the same direction. You have the same ultimate purpose, destination. Maybe, maybe even the subordinate steps to get there. You agree about all of that. I think that describes in part the unity of the Trinity. They agree about everything that two persons can agree about. There's not a shadow of a shade of disagreement between the Father and the Son. There never has been and never will be. Perfect agreement about everything. And they love alike. The Father loves what the Son loves, and the Son loves what the Father loves. Conversely, the Father hates what the Son hates, and the Son hates what the Father hates. They're in absolute agreement at the affectional level. Their emotions, their thoughts, their affections are, are united. They think alike, they love alike, and they're moving in the same direction. They've agreed about the destination and how to get there. So that describes the unity of the Trinity, and that should describe unity in the church as well. But so often it doesn't. And I think I mentioned this uh, last night, but almost every New Testament church that we know anything of, about was faction-ridden and division, uh, filled with divisions. I'm just beginning a series in, in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, at First Baptist Church. And uh, the very first issue Paul deals with in that, and that church was messed up. I mean, it was a messed up church. Um, but the very first thing he, de he deals with it are the factions and divisions. I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, I, I follow Cephas. And so as a, a faction and division-ridden church, you see the same thing in Galatians, how their, their false doctrine, the doctrine of, of uh, the circumcision party, their legalistic doctrine had led them to really dislike each other. Uh, legalism leads to a lack of love because it does not slay the flesh at all. And so they were very fleshly, and he said to them in Galatians, if you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out, it will be devoured by one another. There will be nothing left. So it was like a pack of wild dogs. And you can go right on down, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, there's an indication of divisions within the local church. You see the same thing. And even in the sweet epistle of Philippians, there's division. Because he, he, devo he devotes two-thirds of a chapter to being one and being united. I don't know you as well as I'd like to know, but... My guess is that you're tempted in the same direction as well, that there are divisions in every local church. I know our church has to deal with it as well because uh, of the effects of sin. I believe when sin entered the world, it had the effect of a fragmentation grenade. Everything was one under God. The entire universe was one under his creative power and under his kingship. And when sin entered the world, it blew apart and God, in Ephesians 1, is sovereignly turning all that around and bringing it back together and making it one under one head, Christ. And so that's the, the unification of all things under Jesus. And the church should be leading the way in that and, and, and showing out how, how the gospel unifies and brings people together in the pattern of the Trinity. For me, it's a sweet meditation, isn't it, to think when we get to heaven, we will agree with each other about everything. And this is very much how we seek to run our church as elders at First Baptist Church. We seek to come to full agreement about everything. It's not easy to do. But we wait on the Lord. We wait in prayer. We make reasoned arguments with each other. We reason from Scripture. We listen to each other. We wait. And then we come to unity. And when there's ten elders in our church and when we go and present something to the church, we are united. We don't throw each other under the bus. 
You know, if we have eight elders that see something one way and two elders that see it a different way, the, the eight are under obligation to listen to the two. Listen carefully. Try to understand what their concerns are. And we wait and we pray. But the two are under pressure too. Because eight of their brother elders see it differently than they do. And it, there, ta there takes a certain humility to say, well, I could be wrong. Could be wrong. And so if I can't, if we can't win the day in a reasonable amount of time of persuasion, we'll be humble enough to say I'm probably seeing it wrong. And so therefore, actually, when we filter elders, we, we look for people that will think like that. We'll think like a team and be humble. We want them to be godly leaders. We want them to be well instructed in scripture. But we also want them to be humble enough to, to know that on any issue, they might be seeing it wrong. And, and be humble enough to listen to each other. And thus we can present a united uh, presentation to the church. But that's the kind of unity that we should have. And the same thing with the church uh, within, uh, within itself. So let's just walk through this and try to understand what Paul says. He's urging them to unity so that they can hold out the word of life. That's how this whole thing hangs together. Look down uh, at verse uh, uh, 14. Do everything without complaining or arguing. I love that verse. It's like, uh, memorize that one, Philippians 2.14. Begin scripture memory with that one, and then just obey it. That's all. I mean, what's so hard about that? I mean, it, is it hard to understand? Do everything without complaining or arguing? I'd like to get through a half a day without complaining or arguing. That's a goal. I'll start with half a day. Oh, God, give me four, five, six hours without complaining or arguing. All right? It's amazing. You know, I, I came from a Catholic background, and my parents and other Catholics are trying to get me back in and say, the Bible, it's so hard to understand. It's not hard to understand. Are you having a hard time understanding that? Do everything without complaining or arguing. I know exactly what those words mean. I am well familiar with complaining and with arguing. Do everything without. No complaining, no arguing. And the final uh, messages I'm going to give to you, I'm going to talk about Christian contentment. And to learn how to be content in any and every situation. To not complain about anything. To not murmur against God about anything. And to not bicker with one another and have divisions with one another. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault. It's a sanctification language. He acknowledges that complaining and arguing is home base for us sinners. But do everything without complaining or arguing so you can become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold forth or hold out the word of life. So what is he saying? The combination of the two journeys I gave you yesterday, holiness, sanctification, and evangelism, they really are coming together here. So that as you become more and more Christ-like, and you become more and more holy and, and corporately holy, like you love one another and you're one together, you can hold out the way of life, the words of life to a crooked and depraved generation that desperately needs it. You see how it all fits together here. Just before that, in verses 12 and 13, he's been talking about unity, about humility, about not having selfish ambition. He says, I'm telling you to do this. I'm telling you, God is telling you to stop being prideful stop having selfish ambition and vainglory stop all that have the same mind of Christ this is a command that God the king is giving you and I know you will obey as you've always obeyed because sanctification is about progressive perfection and obedience you're going to become more and more obedient as you've always obeyed not only my presence but now much more in my absence continue to obey 
on this. Continue to be humble and continue to get along with each other. I'm commanding you to come continue to obey. And, but he puts it this way, continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, become more and more humble. That's working out your salvation. In the context, that's what he's talking about. Be more and more humble with each other like Jesus. Think more and more servant like Jesus, a servant heart like Jesus. Think more and more like that. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Talk about that phrase you know, when I uh, get, get to there, but I'm just setting the whole section up for you. Because it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So this is an incredible passage here on the theologically deep issue of sanctification, my will, God's will, our cooperation in sanctification to the end that I become increasingly holy, increasingly humble. God's working it in me by the Spirit. I need to work on it too. And to that end, if all of us are doing that, we will be able to hold out the word of life to people who need it. So that's a whole section holds, holds together. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on Timothy and Epaphroditus. I love that section, but we only have so much time. So from verse 19 to the end, uh, beautiful scripture. But here's the thing about scripture. It's all God-breathed, but it's not all equally helpful. It, it's all God, it's all glorious, but it's not all equally glorious. And so I want to focus on those that just are very powerful and take some explaining. If you want to pull me aside during the break and say, tell me more about Timothy and Epaphroditus, I will. Um, but I want to zero in on the first uh, half of the chapter. So let's just walk through it. He says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then be like-minded. So he, he's saying that. He, he's laying out your treasures. He's laying out the richness of your benefits in Christ. And the word if can often be translated since. It's not a question whether you have any encouragement if you're a Christian. You do. There's not, we're not wondering if you have any comfort from his love. If you're a Christian, you certainly have been comforted by God's love for you. He's not wondering whether you have any fellowship in the Spirit or with the Spirit. If you're a Christian, you most certainly do. And he's not wondering if you have ever experienced any tenderness and compassion from God to you or that you have shown, God, uh, shown others any tenderness and compassion because you're a Christian. All of those things are true. So since you are this rich in Christ, that's what he's saying. Since you in fellowship are so rich. So if you have any encouragement, it's the same as related to the word for the, the paraclete, the comforter, the Holy Spirit. Uh, if you have any consolation, encouragement, perhaps even exhortation from being in Christ. So you have been consoled, you have been exhorted, you have been comforted. It's a rich word. But if you have any of that in Christ, now the idea of in Christ is you have become one with Christ. Apart from that, we have no hope of sanctification. The moment that you become a Christian, you become spiritually one with Christ. You died with Christ, you were raised with Christ, you are spiritually united with Christ, and that should bring you encouragement. That's what he's saying. If you have any comfort from his love, are you not comforted by the fact that God loves you? Does that not bring you the ultimate consolation there could ever be? When you are on your deathbed, you will be comforting yourself with God's love for you in Christ. You have no other hope. As much as I yearn for you to be holy and to be sanctified, on your deathbed, you'll not be thinking about your sanctification. That work is done. You made as much progress as you could. <laughs> But it won't be enough. If that's all you had, it would be insufficient. But you will be comforted by the fact that God loves you in Christ. 
And that's great consolation. If you have any of that, or since you have so much consolation, if you have any fellowship with the Spirit, koinonia, that sharing together with the, with the Spirit, and not just you, but you know that your brothers and sisters have the same Spirit. There's a oneness in the Spirit that we have. I'll tell you what, I've been all over the world, and I've met Christians that I don't, even, I don't know their language. We have to talk to each other through a translator. But when we begin to understand what he, how each other thinks, we know that we're one. We're reading the same Bible. We believe the same gospel. We have the same hope in heaven. We're fighting the same sins by the Spirit. We are one. And it's a beautiful thing. And that's that koinonia, that sharing, that fellowship. So he's talking to the Philippian church. You share things together. We saw how early in the church in Acts chapter 2, they shared all things in common. They shared everything. They didn't consider that any of their possessions were their own. It was a a time of revival. Uh, But you have that same kind of fellowship. If any tenderness and compassion... Uh, This is such a powerful uh, pairing of words. Do you not feel it? Has not God been tender and compassionate toward you? I think much about the father of the prodigal son. And with what tenderness he put a, a robe on him and a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet. And with what delight he hugged him and welcomed him back into the family. There's such a tenderness and a, and a, and a compassion in God. It's infinite. And therefore, we begin to be like that with each other. We have a tenderness with each other. We have a compassion, vertical, horizontal. God's been tender with me. He's been compassionate with me. Therefore, I should be tender and compassionate toward uh, one another. Then he says, make my joy complete by being like-minded. So what he's saying here is, I have a joy in Christ that's independent of you. I'm going to talk about all that to you. If you guys just blow up and split into two churches... And that's happened. Do you know how many Protestant denominations there are? I looked this up. 41,000 Protestant denominations. There's got to be some sin in there somewhere. (laughs) Are you thinking that possibly there's some sin in that 41,000 denominations? Why can't you, all of you, just get along? (laughs) But they divide. Actually, I take a a bike ride on a, a scenic road, and there is Red Mountain Baptist Church, And about three-quarters of a mile up the road, on the opposite side of the road, there's new Red Mountain Baptist Church. (laughs) Have you seen that? Whoa. (laughs) What happened here? All right. Uh, Obviously, something occurred. Um, I hope they're both doing well. Uh, You know, I don't know how their witnessing is going in the community. Um, But that's, I, I think, just not knowing much, I just think there's some scandal in that. There's something that could have been done better. But I don't want to judge. Maybe there's a very good reason they did that. Um, But at any rate, there's this division. He said, make my joy complete. I have a joy in Christ, but I would have far more feelings of joy and happiness if you would just get along with each other. You know, he planted that church really at the cost of his blood. He was beaten in Philippi. And uh, to know that they were loving one another, he said, make my joy complete by being like-minded. And so think alike. And you're like, is that even possible? Can we actually agree about everything? It actually is. There's nothing that would hinder it. Does not God have a verdict on any uh, issue that might ever come up in your church life? Does not God have a thought about what you should do, about every detail of your church life? He does. Is God divided? Is he like, I don't know what to do. I'm going back and forth on this one. This is a hard one for me. And that's ludicrous. Imagine asking Jesus, of all the people you healed, which was the hardest for you? Which one did you find the most difficult? It's like, what? <laughs> they were all easy. If I want them healed, they get healed. Now, if Lazarus had been in the tomb five days rather than four, would that have been a little bit harder for you? No. 
50 years, 50 centuries, it doesn't matter. It's the sovereign power of God. Well, the same thing with his thinking. He thinks about everything perfectly. He has, an, he has a mind about everything. If you both, person A, person B, have the mind of God on it, you'll both agree with each other. So it's just a matter of, oh God, would you please reveal your will to us? If anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. So just you ask God, you get together and pray, you fast you, until you reach unity. And sometimes I think we're in such a hurry that we don't wait on God and come to unity with one another. But God has a mind on everything. So he says, be like-minded, have the same mind together, and have the same affection. Love like God does. Love what God loves. This is the clearest display of the deity of Christ and the honor that the Father gives to the Son in Hebrews chapter 1 where he, quoting a psalm, says, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy by setting you above your companions. God chose Jesus out as the number one human being in Hebrews 1 because he loves righteousness and hates wickedness just like God does. And no one else has ever done it like Jesus. Perfect love of righteousness, a perfect hatred of wickedness. That's the nature of Christ. And Jonathan Edwards in his book, Treatise on Religious Affection, said the, the nature of true religion comes down to what you love and what you hate. That's, that defines you as a person. And so think alike, love alike, and hate alike. We, it's not just a matter of loving, but it's a matter of hating. And so you're going to love righteousness, hate wicked, wickedness, the same. And then he goes back to being, being like-minded again. He basically says the same thing twice. Other, one translation says having the same purpose, and that's possible. But the idea is just thinking alike and loving alike. And then he says, and speaking about the problems that they have, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Verse 4, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. These are the diseases that destroy unity. It's sin. It's that, that fleshly mind. Romans chapter 8 talks about the mind of the flesh. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So the mind of the flesh is rebellious. It is lawless. And out of that, we have been saved. We've been given the mind of the spirit. And the mind of the flesh, the mind of the flesh is all about me. The, I think the flesh, one definition I've given before, is a fanatical commitment to self. And not trying to disparage little ones, but they come out of the womb that way. They come out of the womb fanatically committed to self-interest. Have you not noticed? We had five kids, three in the morning, one of them, present company accepted. Uh, maybe not. Anyway, um, if one of them had a bodily need at three in the morning, they wouldn't say, you know, it's, mom's need needs rest. She needs some rest. And I'm just going to wait until, would 6.30 be good for you? I can wait. I'm, I'm good. Do you, no, they howl until they get their way. And a large part of parenting is training them to stop being so selfish. And that's a lot, large part of sanctification, too, that we would not be so fanatically committed to our self-interest. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. What do you want? What's good for you? It doesn't make it right either, because they're just a human being, but to at least listen. And it could be that your self-interest and 
That person's self-interest, neither one of them are the will of God for the church or for that situation. But just being, just to start by getting up out of yourself and saying, what would be best for you? How can I look out for your interests? And the thing that fights all of that is pride. What Augustine said is the root of all sins. Our pride will not allow us to do that. That's why churches quarrel and fight and divide, because of the wickedness of our pride. And so we've got to slay our pride. And and the Holy Spirit does that here in this text by giving us the example of Christ. We have been united with Christ. Let's understand how he thinks. Let's understand the mind of Christ because it's going to dominate our minds in heaven. We will be perfectly humble in heaven. Absolutely humble. And so he says, have this mind in you which was also in Christ. It says in another place in Corinthians, we have the mind of Christ. We're not told to obtain the mind of Christ. We already have it. If you're a Christian, you have the mind of Christ. Through the Holy Spirit, you can think exactly like Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? And you don't have to wait. It's not like a long learning curve. 20 years down the line, finally you can begin to think like Jesus. As soon as you're converted, you're made a new creation, you can immediately, in every respect, think like Jesus. Nothing would hinder you. And so what he's saying here is, to put the whole the Corinthians uh, verse together with this one is, you have the mind of Christ, now use it. Think like him. All right, well, how does he think? Here he zeroes in on his humility. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is how he thinks. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So that's the downward journey that we see, that that infinite downward journey. It starts with him in the heavenly realms. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ, who, although he was in the form of God, a more literalistic translation, So he had the form or the pattern of God. By that, I think it's the the display, the outward glory, the position of honor. These are the things he laid aside. We have to be very careful theologically here. He didn't stop being God when he was the baby in the manger. He was 100% deity. And so the emptying of himself that this text talks about here is not an absolute emptying so that he was no longer God. He stopped being God. But he stopped having the trappings of deity, the glory. You know how in John 17 he said, Father, give me the glory that I had with you before the world began. That's what he had laid down, the outward display of glory. That's what the seraphim were covering their faces before, the radiant glory of God. That was Jesus' birthright. It, it, It belonged to him as God. So he was in the form of God, but even though he was in the form of God, he did not consider it robbery as one translation to hold on to that. He did not consider it uh, something to be grasped. Having, being God, he didn't hold on to it. There's a lot of different ways to understand that, that word robbery or something to be held on to. There's five different interpretations I gave in one sermon. We don't have time for all that. But I think what, it, what, what it's saying is he didn't think it was something he had to seize by force and hold on to. But he opened his hand and gave it up. Again, talking about outward trappings of glory, position, sitting on a throne, high and exalted, all of that. We get a little glimmer of it when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. The glory was still his. He could have it any time. But he laid it down because he had to appear like a normal man. He had no 
beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him, Isaiah 53. He has to be unimpressive visually so that we can listen to his words, watch his life, and see a different kind of glory in him, a glory that can only be perceived by faith. If he's radiant, shining, everyone's on their faces in front of him and no one can move. So instead, he lays beside all of that glory and he makes himself nothing, taking the very nature of a slave. So in other words, the same word, very nature God, very nature slave. So this is the the mystery of the incarnation. He is as much slave or human as he was God. 100% God, 100% human and human servant. And so the essence of being a human is to be a servant or a slave. Now you're like, I don't like that. I don't want to be anybody's servant. I want to be my own master. I want to be my own boss. I don't want anyone telling me what to do. You will serve someone. As a human being, you will serve someone. It is not an option to serve no one. Serving yourself and no one else is serving Satan. You have been deceived. Serving yourself and no one else is serving sin, flesh, Sin, death, Satan. All the dark side. You are not a free agent. That's, one of the, that's the central lie from Satan. You will serve God or you will serve evil. There's no third place. There's no free agents here. And so therefore, if you ask, why, why isn't the New Testament clearly emancipatory? Why doesn't Paul command uh, masters to set all their slaves free? It's a deep question. I can't go into all the details, but I tell you that slavery is eternal. We will spend forever serving God. It's right there in Revelation 22 and verse 4. His servants will serve him. It's right in the New Jerusalem. But his sons will also be adopted and have the honor and glory of being sons and daughters of the king. So we get it all, just like Jesus. Jesus is fully son, fully slave. And forever. And so he serves him. He became the very nature of a servant, saying, I am here to do the will of Uh, my father, not to do my own will. I am here to do his will. And we see the nth degree of that in Gethsemane, didn't we? How Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. And he's willing to go to the cross. So he he says, uh, being made in human likeness in the form of a human, fully human, and being found in appearance as a man, sees himself as a human. Once he was ready to begin his public ministry, 30 years old, approximately, you know, began his public ministry. All he did was serve. He served and served and served. And we see that with the healings. Jairus comes to him and says, my little daughter is sick. Jesus gets up and goes with him. Remember? I mean, how many people come to Jesus and ask for something and he gives it to them? Even the Syrophoenician woman, he didn't even answer her. Eventually she got what she she came for. Jesus was a servant to everyone that came. But more than anything, he was a servant to his father. He said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. So Jesus came to do the Father's will. He was a full servant to every human being that he met. And he humbled himself, and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So that key word there is obedience. We were made to obey. And that's something we struggle with. Our pride struggles with it. But Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. You remember the next part? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. 
For I'm humble and gentle in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. I believe with all my heart that yoke refers to his kingly authority. That's what yokes were metaphorically back then. It had to do with the yoke of a king. And you had to bow your stiff neck under the yoke. And Jesus said, if you'll just do that, you'll find rest for your souls. Did he come to rule over you? Yes, he did. Did he come to give you rules and commands? Yes. Must you obey them? You must. And so Jesus sets the pattern of obeying his Father, then we must obey him. And he's going to get to that in a moment. As you've always obeyed, continue to obey. But he said Jesus became obedient. How far did he go? To death. He was obedient to death. He yielded to death, as we see in Gethsemane. I do believe that when God the Father revealed to Jesus what it would be like to drink the cup of his wrath on the cross, and remember how Jesus in some way mysteriously shrank back from it and said, Father, if it is possible, let this cup be taken from me, but not my will but yours be done. I believe there was a, an infinite depth to what the Father revealed to the Son because it says in Mark 14, verse 33, that the Son was astonished or amazed. Amazed. At what? At the cross? He knew he was going to the cross. No, at what it would be like to drink infinite wrath for us. And therefore, for him to see it and the implicit question as he hands this noxious, poisonous cup to Jesus, the implicit question from the Father to the Son is, will you drink it? And he answered yes. That has got to be the most courageous thing any human being has ever done. It's first in humility, first in courage. And so he was willing to die, even the death on a cross, the most humiliating and degrading and painful death imaginable. The Assyrians invented crucifixion to make it hard on uh, their people so that they would not die quickly. Pilate was amazed that Jesus had died so quickly. But when the time had come, he laid down his life. No one took it from him, but he died. And so he was willing to obey, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. There is a clear link. And if you want to be honored in heaven, you need to serve on earth. This is the consistent. And you need to suffer in service. The more you suffer and serve, the greater will your reward be in heaven. And we know that there's some brothers and sisters that are way ahead of us in that line that have been willing to suffer more than we can possibly imagine for the gospel, who are willing to go and get sick and bury loved ones and suffer tortures even to spread the gospel. And they should be more highly honored than those of us that didn't suffer as much. And they will be honored, but Jesus gets the first place. No one suffered like Jesus. So therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And what is that? God. Almighty God, worthy of worship. Book of Revelation, the Lamb, looking as if it had been slain, was standing in the center of the throne of heaven. What does that tell you? Worthy of worship. He is God. And so he gave him the name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the honor that comes to Jesus. That's what he has earned. Now, any Scripture-reading Jew would understand exactly what Paul was doing there. When I wrote my commentary in Isaiah, it became very, very clear. There's copies of it back there, and you can thumb through it. But from Isaiah 40 to 49, those 10 chapters, there's one theme again and again. There is one God and only one God, and all your idols are nothing. All your idols are nothing. And in the middle of that, in Isaiah 45, he says these things. Verse 22 and 23. Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. 
By myself I have sworn, my mouth is uttered in all integrity, a word that will not be revoked. Before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. It almost brings goosebumps. Any, uh, any Jew reading that would say, that is God. He is the only one before whom all knees will bow. And Paul ascribes it to Jesus. No doubt about it, he is claiming deity for Christ here. And so what that means is on Judgment Day, when all humanity is brought before Jesus, they are all going to be on their knees before them, some in worship and some in terror. I don't believe this teaches universalism, not at all, but I do believe that his place as God will be clearly established in the final word. And so, because Jesus humbled himself, God exalted him and said that everyone would bow before him. Okay, since that is true, therefore... Since Jesus so humbled himself, have the same mind in you that he had. Think like him. And the more you humble yourself like Jesus, the more humble you are, the less you're going to have divisions and factions within your church. And if you have divisions and factions within your church and disagreements, it's because you're fleshly. Same as us, same as me. If you're having that in your marriage, it's because you're fleshly. Come to this passage Humble yourself before this. Oh, God, through the Holy Spirit, will you not humble me? Will you not make me less fleshly? Work in me so that we can be perfectly one. So he says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, you know, since you came to Christ, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Why does he say much more? Because pretty much for the rest of the time, they're going to be without Paul. And so they need to do it when he's not around. Don't behave better when the pastor comes around. All right. I remember I was working as an engineer while I was getting my PhD, and everybody knew who I was. I had a, a weekly Bible study that, that people, everybody got invited to, and a very few people came to. Um, but I remember I was out on the assembly line, and there was this guy that was using some very colorful language. And then he suddenly was shocked, and he looked at me and said, I'm sorry, I forgot you were here. I forgot it was, it was you. I said, don't worry about me. I'm not your judge. I'm not gonna, uh, you're not going to stand before me and give an account of your language on Judgment Day, but there is a judge, and you will stand before him and give him an account of your language on Judgment Day, and he'll be here after I leave. <laughs> and he looked at me, he said, that's even worse. <laughs> anyway, that's workplace evangelism for you, but I mean, who, who knows what, what comes, but... Uh, not, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Then he said this, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is the language of sanctification. There's no other way to understand this. I understand that many say that the Roman Catholics teach a works righteousness and that you earn your salvation by works, etc. Paul was not teaching works, works righteousness here. What he's saying is that salvation comes in stages. Justification is imputed righteousness, a gift of righteousness. You're going to talk about it very plainly in the next chapter. No doubt about it. Philippians chapter 3. But then there's a, a holiness that comes through effort. There's a holiness that comes by striving. There's a holiness that is a partnership between you and God, the Holy Spirit. And you work it out together. You work and he works. So you should work out your salvation. In this context, it's be more and more humble like Jesus. Have more and more of that mind of Christ, that humble mind. Work it out. Work on your pride. Slay your pride. Starve your pride. 
so that you become more and more other-centered. Work it out. Work out your salvation. But this is a principle that extends to every area of sanctification. Work out your prayer life with fear and trembling. Work out your, your holiness. If you're struggling with, with internet pornography, work out killing that by the power of the Holy Spirit. Work out your, your financial life, your giving, tithes and offerings. Work out how generous you're going to be. Work out every aspect of your salvation. You need to grow. Become more and more like Christ. It's an infinite journey. So work it out. You need to work on this. And if you don't work, you won't grow. But he says with fear and trembling, what does that mean? I thought it said in 1 John that, that he delivers us from all fear because fear has to do with judgment. We shouldn't take that 1 John thing and forget all the good things that are said about fear in other places, like the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I fear sin. I do. I fear what it could do to me. I fear what it could do to my marriage. I fear what it could do to my ministry. Have you not heard how many famous people there are that have been disqualified because of sin, even quite recently? It's one of the big themes of the Southern Baptist Convention this past week. And I fear it. I should fear it. It should bring me to fear and trembling because God is holy and he will not spare me. He doesn't have a special place for me in my sin. And so I need to fear. Now, God is patient. None of us is perfect. I understand. But we need to be at war with our sins. We need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. In this context, the Philippians should tremble, be fearful and trembling about their divisions and their factions because God hates it. And he will remove their lampstand if they don't get it sorted out. And so with fear and trembling, fear the consequences, even the earthly consequences of sin. Do you fear your father's discipline, your heavenly father's discipline? You should. You should fear his rod. Do you realize that everything you value in this world is fair game for discipline? Your health, your loved ones, your financial well-being, everything. And we should fear that. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. This is a mysterious verse, a mysterious partnership. Some people can't, they struggle with this. The, the divine sovereignty and human responsibility, they struggle with the free will and, and God's uh, predestination. It's, it's hard to put it all together, but Paul just puts them side by side. But he gives the priority, gives a priority to Almighty God. As you work hard on your salvation and your holiness, understand God was working in you first. You never get ahead of the Holy Spirit. You never act in a, in a way that's pleasing God, and the Holy Spirit's like, whoa, I didn't, I didn't see that coming. Good job. That was really, really good. I didn't, I didn't see that coming, but well done. Never. We're always following the Holy Spirit. He's always leading out first, showing it to you in the Word, showing you how you're deficient or defective in a certain way, bringing you to repentance and then causing you to grow. He's always doing that. And so God is working in you to will and to act. This is my problem with the phrase free will. I've never liked it because it's, it's too undefined. If someone says to me, do you believe in free will? I always ask a question. Free from what? Free from what? Free from God's influence? No. Because of this verse, God has the right to get into my heart and change it. And as a matter of fact, if he doesn't, I'll never change. I do believe that with all my heart. So I'm trusting God to work in me to will and then to act according to his good purpose. And you should pray the same. And if you can't sort it all out, it's fine. Just pray scripture. Say, oh, Lord, would you please work in me to will and to act according to your good purpose? And if you do that, then you can do everything without complaining or arguing. 
Will you be able to achieve that level? We're going to talk about Christian contentment at the end. It's a hard thing to do. Why do we complain so much? Why is there so much bickering, so much complaining? But if you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, then you will be able to do everything without complaining or arguing. And as you do, you may become blameless and pure. Isn't that a great phrase? Blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation. We're never going to be perfect and holy in this world. I don't teach perfectionism, but we can become increasingly blameless. We can become increasingly pure, free from all sin as we hold forth uh, the word. Now, applications in the few minutes, we, moments we have left. As you go through this, I want you to begin by asking the Lord to search your own heart, to show you where you are in disunity with another Christian. It might be with your spouse. It might be with another church member. And say, Lord, would you please forgive me? I know that there's some pride in my heart. I know that I've done things out of selfish ambition or, or vain conceit. I know that I've acted in a way. Would you please forgive me? And if you need to, you go horizontally and ask for forgiveness of that other person. And then begin praying that your church, Calvary Baptist, would, would be uh, displaying a supernatural unity. That more and more you would agree with each other about everything. Especially pray for the leaders, the elders of your church, to agree with each other. And that they would lead in a way that is pleasing to the people. It's beautiful when the elders lead and the people are pleased and, and are delighted to follow. And so pray for that kind of unity. And pray that the Lord would work on each of you to have this humility that Christ displayed, to think more highly of others than you do of yourself, and to live a life of service as Jesus did, not thinking what's in it for me or what do I have to do, but to follow Christ as he was serving. And ask the Lord to enable you to make progress in your sanctification. Say, oh God, would you work in me to will and to act? And not just in yourself, but pray for others in your church. Pray for your family. Pray for your spouse. Oh God, would you work in him? Would you work in her to will and to act according to your good purpose so that they, they, can, they can grow in holiness? And pray finally that you as a church would hold forth the word of life to St. John's and to the surrounding vicinity, that you're holding out the word of life in a crooked and depraved generation. It's true now. We live in a crooked, depraved generation. They need the light of the gospel. You are shining like stars in a dark place. The more you grow in humility and in unity, the more powerful you'll be in your evangelism. Close with me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the power of this text, Philippians 2. We thank you for the things that we've learned in it. I pray that you would press them to our heart, enable us to learn and grow by it, and strengthen us. We thank you for all the good things that you've done. And uh, we pray that now, even now, as we rest in fellowship with one another, that you would give us good conversations. In Jesus' name, amen.